Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 13. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear what the hear what hear that your soul may may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast sure love for David. Behold, I am him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God uh, and Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in that thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Well, if you have been with us here. East Point Church, over the last few months, you know we've been going through the life of, of David. But, of course, today is a special Sunday in which we celebrate five years of God's faithfulness to us and Christ remaining our vision in all things. And so I thought that we'd take a break this is Sunday, perhaps, and um, just be reminded of the nature of the fellowship that we have in Christ and and what God has done and what he is doing in molding and shaping us into his image, even as individuals and even as the church redeemed. Uh, besides, the next section in David uh, life is David and Bathsheba, and I didn't want to do that on our anniversary. So uh, we just need family here that day. <laughs> going to be pretty rough. <laughs> and I thought a message on grace would be great leading up into uh, David and Bathsheba, so you can anticipate that as we glory in the abundance of God's grace and pardon for our sins. You know, today we indeed celebrate five years of this continued communion that we have here at East Point Church as God has been fashioning and folding and, and, and growing us together in Christ for these past five years. He has taken sinful and, and broken and hard-hearted and prideful and, and lustful and, and stubborn sinners and formed them and fashioned them into a, a church, a community. A fellowship of grace. A fellowship of grace. In fact, this week, as I was reflecting on East Point Church and what God has, has done, I was reminded of what Spurgeon said about his own soul. He called it a monument of grace. And I said, you know, that's East Point Church. It is a monument of God's Grace. Over the years, God has taught me many things. And one of the important truths that I've learned is that God's people, if they are anything, they are a community of grace, a fellowship of of grace. They are shaped by it. They are molded by his grace, grace and his truth. 
And we see this, I believe, illustrated indeed and instructed to us in Isaiah 55. But this is a section of Isaiah's prophecy in in which it's filled the promises of God to bring his people back out of the exile and to restore them once again as a community of faith and to make Israel once again his monument of grace. Former sections of Isaiah, you see the the prophet prophesying against the sin of Israel and how God is going to bring judgment. God has brought judgment and God is going to bring judgment upon his people, but it will only be for time. And then once that time is over, you see beginning in Isaiah chapter 40, where God says to tell my people, comfort my people, comfort my people, for your sins have been pardoned. And from that time on, even into chapter 55, we see the promise of God restoring his people and bringing them out of exile and restoring them in his good favor according to his grace through the work of his Messiah. One would be offered up in their place. It's a wonderful picture. Because these restored people are going to be the recipients of God's blessing. And it will be a blessed time, beloved, when they are brought back into his grace. And it's because of his grace that they once again realize that they are his people. And they move forward in his grace. If God is going to come to them, when he comes to them, he's going to be gracious. And they will be as we are in fellowship of grace. And what is grace? We talk about it and we, we throw it around as if we really understand what it is. And it's so common in our vernacular as Christians and churchgoers. We sing about it and we pray about it, but really what is it? Paul's all describes grace as this. He says, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. In other words, it's undeserved, it's unrelenting, it's unyielding, and it's unmistakable. So what we see in Isaiah 55 is God's love coming to his people and fashioning them into this monument of his grace. And as we walk through this passage, I want to point out these movements of grace that are particularly sharp in this passage. And I think particularly sharp for us as a church and as a people. First, we'll see the invitation of grace. And then we'll move on and we'll see the exploration of grace. Finally, we'll end on the certification of grace. But first we see this invitation, don't we? Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 2, it says, Come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, he says, diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. The fellowship of grace at its onset, is the recipient of a gracious invitation. God invites his people to come. God invites his people. Notice, notice the frequency with which the invitation is made. Come. Over and over again. Come, come, come. In my translation, there's four comes. 
but actually it's probably more like three comes. Because the first come, the very first one, when it says come, it's not so much come as it is yo. Yo. In other words, stop what you're doing. Whatever you think is important, whatever you are doing now, yo, stop what you're doing. Come. The nature of it. Notice. There's five points in this invitation. The first one is come. Come. But the invitation is always from God. That is the nature of grace. It is always God who does the inviting. It is God who has the offer, not us. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, the whole prophecy begins off with God giving this glorious invitation. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red, although they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Why? Because the invitation is always initiated from God. We often hear people in their evangelism and their preaching telling people that you need to invite Jesus into your life. You need to invite Jesus into your heart. But really what happens, beloved, is not so much that you invite Jesus, but it is God who is inviting you. He is the one who comes. He is the one who sends out the invitation. Why? Because dead hearts don't invite a living Christ. It is the living Christ who calls to dead hearts, makes them alive, and says, come. That's the nature of grace. Notice he doesn't just say come. He says, now when you come, come and drink. Drink. For the invitation comes to those who are thirsty. Their sins have dried them up. And they are left in a desert land and they thirst. They're thirsty. They're parched. He says, these are the ones to whom I speak. You come and you drink. Come, come like the psalmist says in Psalm 42, that my soul pants after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. It is those to whom. Invitation says, come and drink. Not just drink, it says, come, drink, and buy. Buy. For these are those who are poor, and they have nothing to offer. And yet it is to the poor that this offer comes, Because they understand that we need bread that money can't buy. We need milk you can't get from Publix. But you notice there's something very interesting here. It's not so much that you don't have money. Because you do have money. Notice what it says. You spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. In other words, you have money. You have currency. The currency that the Lord is talking here is not so much the paper and the coinage that is in your pocket as much as it is the more valuable things of your time, of your energy, of your resources, of your heart, of your desires, of your passions. How are you spending those things? We do, beloved. We spend them on those things that do not satisfy. God says, you come to me, I don't need your money. I don't need your righteousness. I don't need your work. I don't need your esteem. 
You're coming to a transaction that has already been paid for. You come. You're going to buy. But you're not going to have any money. You're not going to have any money. And the psalmist says, but Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. Why? Because they come without money. They come without price. They just come. Notice it says you come, you drink, you buy. It says come and feast. Come and eat. Why? Because these are those who are hungry. They are hungry. They have had their share of what the world has to offer, and they have found it to be empty. Doesn't satisfy. And they're still hungry. They're still hungry for more. That's what our Lord says in Matthew 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A hunger for righteousness that is not their own. They hunger for it. They want to eat. They realize that their life is a desert and they are beggars. Notice what he calls it. He says, come and get the rich food, the good food, the fine food. And then lastly, he says, here, you're going to come drink, you're going to buy, you're going to eat, you're going to hear. You're going to hear so the invitation is to receive the word of God, to listen and to receive it as an implanted word in the soul. It is my prayer, my prayer would be yours, that we would be a church where this invitation is believed and received. That this invitation rings, is heard, and that it is believed and that it is received, that you hear the Lord saying, come, come. Why? Because nothing hinders you from this. There's nothing that hinders you from hearing and coming to the word of God. Come. Not only that, that you would drink. The idea here is not that you won't ever be thirsty, but that you always know where to find the living water. And that you thirst and you thirst and you thirst, not for the things of the world, but that we would be a church where people could come and drink freely from the fountain of life. Oh, if I'm thirsty, men and women come into fellowship. I don't want what the world is offering. I want to drink from the fountain that is Come and buy, not with his money, not with your own money, but with his. You come and eat, not the filling, not being filled with what doesn't satisfy, with unsatisfying food of the world, but with the bread of life. And you hear all about eternity. You hear. Because the invitation is always from God to his people to come. This is what Jesus does, isn't he? He offered this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Here is the great invitation again, echoing from God to his people. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You come, come, come. 
you ever get tired of praying? I do. I do. What do you do about it? What do you do about it? Perhaps, perhaps you just throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, well, that's just the way I am. People do that, you know. All that leads to is a self-defeat. Or perhaps you don't do that. Perhaps you just sit down and you get on your knees and you say, I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to stop it. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do it right. You know, all that does most times just lead to self-righteousness. Anytime you do conquer one sin, you think you've done something. You usually fall deeper into another sin. Self-righteousness and but if you don't throw your hands up in the air and just say, oh, well, that's just the way I am, or you don't just, you know, your knees and say, I'm going to try hard, I'm just going to stop it, perhaps then you just ignore it, thinking that it's just going to go away on its own. Here's a little sidebar, you know, it's, it's the same way with, with vehicles, you know. If, if your brakes are squeaking, ah, uh, newsflash, brakes don't fix themselves. There's a problem. Sin is not self-correcting. And if you think it's just going to go away on its own, then you are liable to self-deception. So what do you do with your sin? Some people engage in self-defeat. Some people produce self-righteousness. Some people become self-deceived. It seems to me what God wants us to do when we're tired of sinning is to do what to do the same thing we do whenever we're tired. And that is to rest. When your feet are tired, what do you want to do? Rest. When your body is tired, what do you want to do? Rest. You ever get tired of sinning? You're like me, and you, you want to rest. And what is that? That rest is getting your eyes off of you, getting your eyes off of your sin and turning your gaze upon Jesus. Turning your gaze upon Jesus. And how do you do that? You admit, you admit that you are thirsty. You admit that you are hungry. You admit that you are poor. You, are, you admit that you are needy. Oh, for a change. We regularly acknowledge, I'm poor. I'm needy. I'm wretched. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. The songwriter says, come all ye pining, hungry, poor, the Savior's bounty taste. Behold a never-failing store for every willing need. You just come. You just come. And here's the thing, though. When you come like that, when you come thirsty, poor, needy, hungry, Jesus is not going to judge you. Jesus is not going to judge you. Jesus is going to hug you. <laughs> Jesus is going to embrace you. He is not going to judge you. Now, others might. And I can tell you, as a pastor and as an author, I know it is to be judged. They're judged all the time. Because everybody always knows what the pastor should say what the pastor should do. Everybody always knows what the author should have wrote or what he shouldn't have wrote. Do you know that the only way, the only way that I can lay my head down at night and get a peaceful rest is because I hear the 
voice of my Savior. Tony, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I find rest. for peace and have people to come and know that if Christ doesn't bring peace, neither will I. Neither will I. A gracious invitation, brother. When he says, come, he means it. Come, come, come. He is faithful and just if you will just come. But notice there's not just the invitation, but notice the exploration for those who have come, who have received the invitation. See this in verse 6. He says, now seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Seek the Lord. That's the exploration. The Lord doesn't just want you to come to him, but when you come, now he says, seek me. For this gracious invitation leads to this gracious admonition. This admonition is seeking the Lord. For the ones who truly seek God are those to whom his grace is coming. You know that. The reason that God can say, seek me, is because he has given you the invitation to come. A.W. Tozer, in his book on the pursuit of God, begins it with this important statement. That the only person who pursues God is the one God has pursued. The only one who seeks the Lord are those whom the Lord has sought, to whom he has given the gracious invitation to come. When they come, they seek him. Now, this seeking is not as if God is is lost. That is not the idea of seeking here. But the seeking is to know God. That God has made himself available to be known. And since he is available to be known, he says, come and know me. You know what he promises? You know what he promises? He promises that if you would seek him, you will know him. If you really want to know him, you can know him. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29. God says, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Why? Because the great God of the universe has made himself available. He says, come and know me. Why? Because God is not hiding. It's not a hide-and-seek game. He doesn't play it. God is not hiding. The idea here is not that God is lost, and so we got to play hide-and-seek with him. No. It's not God who hides from us. It's we who hide from God. We do the hiding. We learned it well from our first parents. After Adam and Eve sinned and the, and, and the shame of their nakedness and their sin and their transgression was upon them, God comes what? Seeking. And what are they doing? Hiding. And ever since then, human beings, you and I, we hide from God. We hide away from him. And we hide away from the church. We just don't come. We just don't come. We go into hiding. 
or perhaps we come to church and we hide anyway. When we sit in the midst of the congregation and we hide, we hide in our own false and hypocritical veneers. As if God doesn't know. You know why we hide? Because we don't want to hear what God says. That's it. That's why Adam and Eve hide here. They didn't want to hear what the Lord had to say. And that's why we hide, because we don't want to hear what the Lord has to say. Because we know the Lord knows us, and he's going to speak truth into our lives, and we don't want to hear it. So we are. We hide away from the church. We don't come to church. Or if we come to church, we tune it out. We don't want to hear. And yet, God comes to us anyway. And the invitation is still there. Come. Come. I know you're hiding. I know you're afraid. But just come. I know you're thirsty. I know you're hungry. I know you're poor. I know you don't have anything to offer, but your sin still come. Notice what he says. When you come, just call on me. That's how you come. You know, that's how you seek the Lord. You know, that's how you know the Lord. You call on him. That's what it says there, doesn't it? It says, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. To call upon the Lord is to know him. And when you know the Lord, you know what you do? You repent and you believe. That's what happens. That's what happens. You repent and believe. And this is the grace of grace. That God sends the invitation. And he says, seek me. And when you seek me, you call upon me. And when you truly call upon the Lord, your heart breaks. And you repent. Having not called upon his name, and you believe. And you believe. For to repent, beloved, is to know the grace and the mercy of God. It's the only way to know it. And that's why he wants us to call upon him. He wants us to call upon him because he wants us to experience his grace. But you're not going to experience his grace if you're not willing to repent. In the repentance, and you turn from your ways, and you turn from your thoughts. The exploration of grace leads to the expectation of grace. You can expect that God will abundantly pardon you. This is what he delights to do. This is what he is designed to do. Do you know? Do you understand that pardon is God's preferred work? That is his preferred work. Judgment is not his preferred work. He would prefer to pardon. Because he is abundant in mercy and steadfast love. He is overflowing with grace. He prefers to pardon. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. God says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Why? Because God would rather pardon. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, 
as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why? Because his preferred work is pardon. Go for a church. That would understand that. That would understand that God is not this great, wicked being standing over you, hoping to stomp on you and crush you like an ant for your sin. But his desire is that you would come to him. Seek him, call upon him, and know that he will abundantly pardon you. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. Other people may get tired of forgiving you. God does. God does. Oh, for a church that would be people seeking God. Seeking Him every week. What do you come here for? I'm seeking God. I'm looking for Jesus. You know, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden and the soldiers came up to him with Judas, Jesus asked them a question. Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. They really did not understand what they were saying. But we do. We do. Every Sunday when you come here and people ask you what you're doing here, you say, I'm looking for Jesus the Nazarene. I don't come to be entertained. I don't come to get on some emotional high. I come to see Jesus. I didn't come to see the preacher. I didn't come to find the songwriter. I heard they had a young lady there named Ruth, and I wanted to see. No, I didn't come to see Ruth. I'm seeking Jesus, the Nazarene. Why? Because I am amazed that he could love me, a sinner, condemned, and unclean. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how marvelous. You see what I'm saying? And my soul shall ever be. Why? Because Jesus the Nazarene has loved sinners condemned and unclean. And that's who I'm going to. Go for a church that will come every week. Notice that moves on to the certification of grace. See that in verse 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Why? Because God certifies his word is good. He certifies it. He puts his stamp of guarantee upon it. He guarantees that his grace and his word will accomplish all that he declares it will do. You know why this is true? You know why you can be certain that this is true? You can be certain that this is true even as you know that the rain and the snow falls down from the sky. God who makes it rain. It's God who causes it to snow. Psalm 147. God causes the wind to blow and the water to flow. 
It was God who asked Job, do you know where the snow is stored? I do. Amos chapter 4 and verse 7 says that God causes it to rain in one city and to be a drought in the next. It is God who does this. He causes the earth to flourish. He gives seed to the sower. He brings forth fruit. He grants the harvest all according to the grace and mercy of God. And if that is true, says is even more true when it comes to his word and the life of his people. It is God, it is God who sends forth his word and implants it in our heart. It is God who has promised to produce that fruit. It is God who has promised that that seed will accomplish all that God has decreed that it will accomplish. It is God who has promised to produce in our lives all that he said it would produce. You know what else produce? Produces life, doesn't it? It's God who brings the dead to living by his word and his grace. But not just produces life, it produces family, doesn't it? For it takes those who were slaves to sin and he makes them into sons and daughters of God. But, but he also is God who makes community. For it says here that he will take a people who are not a people and fashion them into a people for his own glory, a monument of grace. He promised that he would do it. And just as the rain and the snow falls, you can best believe God will do what he said. In fact, that's what he's been doing for the past five years. He's been fashioned and molding and making us into a community of grace, a monument of grace. He's been doing it according to his word. I didn't do it. Look around you. Look around you. Look, just look at all the people around you. If I had done it, it wouldn't look like this. I didn't do it. Don't blame me. Don't blame me. It's God's doing. He's been fashioning. He's been molding. He's been shaping us into a people for his own glory. If you don't like it, take it up with him. Because he promised that he would. And he has. And his word is certifiably true. This is God's work of grace. And I'll be the first one to admit, it's not always easy. You know, that, that, that soil in which the Lord is planting the seeds at his East Point Church, there's portions of it that's real rocky. That resists water. <laughs> you know, if it was up to me, I'd scrap it and start over another whole plot of land. God has promised that that word that he has sent into the hearts of those in East Point Church will not return to him void. It's going to produce fruit. Not always as fast as I like it, or you may like it. God has promised it, and he has stamped it, certified, and it's good. And it's going to produce fruit in you, and believe it or not, even in me. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And that's the way God would have it. So, in just concluding, our desire continues to be a church that truly, truly, truly we can say this. That invitation of grace and that expiration of grace and that certification of grace is enough. 
we can truly sing and mean it when we say, your grace is enough. For to be truly, to be truly a fellowship of grace, beloved, is to be amazed by it. It is to be amazed by it. But you do understand that the only way to be amazed by the grace of God is to stop being amazed at yourself. The only way. As long as you are amazed at yourself, you will not be amazed at the grace of God. Notice what Paul Tripp says. Paul Tripp says, when we look in the mirror of self-appraisal, the person we tend to see is a person who is more righteous than any of us actually is. It is not until we look in that mirror that we see broken, we see hungry, we see thirsty, we see poor, that we get amazed at the grace of God. That we can love him and crown him with his mercy. The less amazed we are with ourselves and our own opinions, the more we will be at the grace of grace. This is what Paul had to learn. Instead, he learned it. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, you know, I've, I've, I've learned that, that I've, at times I've been low, at times I've been high, at times I've had plenty, at times I've been in want. He says, but through it all, I've learned. I've learned. The Lord has grown me up to understand that in whatever state or condition I am in, his grace is Enough. He reiterates that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He gets even more specific about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he seeks the Lord over and over again because of this angst, because of this anxiety, because of this affliction that is burning him down, that he's focused on, that he can't get his eyes off of. And he wants the Lord to remove it. I'm tired of it. You know what the Lord says? No. My grace is sufficient. And Paul says, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. Don't, don't, don't be amazed, beloved. Don't be amazed that sinners sin. Be amazed that they get forgiven. Sinners sin. That's what we do. And we get all bent out of shit. Whoa. I can't believe that. Hello. Don't be amazed at that. Be amazed that God is going to forgive it. That he's willing to pardon it. Don't be amazed. Don't be amazed at my imperfection. Don't be amazed at the church's imperfection. We get so amazed that things are not perfect. Absolutely amazed. Sometimes the battery on my mic goes out. Sometimes the communion wine gets mixed with the juice. Sometimes the wrong song comes up on the screen. Sometimes no song at all. Sometimes the sermon is too long. From time to time, you think it's too short. Yes, you do, Mo. Sometimes the babies cry. Sometimes the program gets changed at the last minute. Sometimes we start late. Sometimes we run over. 
At times it may be cold. At times the air conditioning doesn't work at all. Sometimes we run out of food. There are times when we say the wrong things. There are times when we don't say enough. There are times when we misquote the catechism. There are times when we stumble over the reading of the word of God. There are times when we miss a note on the keyboard or we sing off key. Sometimes we neglect to say hi or we forget to say bye. But it is those times that we should not be amazed at our imperfections, but be amazed at the perfections of God. That he's using broken people with glory. You know, these moments in the life of the church should remind us that we are sinners saved by grace. And our imperfections, all they do is magnify the perfections of God. You know what that tells us to do? Get your eyes off of me. Get your eyes off of me. Get your eyes off of all these frail, down here, sinful imperfections and lift your eyes up to the perfections that are Christ. When you do that, beloved, when you do that, you'll remember that His grace is enough. That's why we say, Lord, Remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise. Oh, God. Because in all of these imperfections, your grace, your grace is enough. It is enough. It invites you and it certifies that all that you promise to do, Amen.